Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. John and I are pleased to have one of our NCLA colleagues join us for this uh, next segment. Russ Ryan is Senior Litigation Counsel uh, at the New Civil Liberties uh, Alliance and is an expert on all things uh, SEC related. So uh, welcome to the program, Russ. Thanks, Mark. Uh, great to be back and thanks for having me. Well, I'm sorry that we're, uh, that we're having you on immediately following our discussion of the Anthony Fauci uh, deposition, although maybe that's a great lead in. Maybe we've got a we built up a big audience for you. Maybe. But uh, uh, but uh, in, in all seriousness, I'm excited to, to have you on to talk about uh, an issue that uh, uh, was was framed up and in, in, in a, an amicus brief that you uh, authored for uh, NCLA uh, in a case in the Sixth Circuit, uh, SEC the Jocelyn Murphy, uh, supporting rehearing on Bonk uh, in the Sixth Circuit. Can you uh, tell uh, our audience uh, what, uh, I said Sixth Circuit, that's that's wrong. It's Ninth, Ninth Circuit, Ninth, sorry, yes. Ninth Circuit. Uh, I, I have the Sixth Circuit on the brain for some reason, but yeah, Ninth Circuit, uh, supporting a rehearing on Bonk. Can you tell us what that uh, case is about? Um, sure, sure. In, in many respects, it's just a, a mill run SEC enforcement case. Um, but we got involved because it's a textbook example of how the SEC artificially manipulates its penalty calculations so that it can get to eye-popping numbers on these penalties that vastly exceed the limits that Congress set in the relevant statute. So Congress will set a limit of, say, you know, a violation of such and such statute. You can assess a civil penalty up to a million dollars per violation. And then the SEC says, well, this isn't one violation. I mean, how, how do they do yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, it's actually a lot lower than that. Okay. Um, the relevant statute, there's, there's various statutes the SEC can use. But for purposes of this case, Congress in 1990 set the limits uh, on penalties against individuals, natural persons, um, at only $5,000 as at the low end where there's no fraud and up to a maximum of $100,000 if there is fraud. Um, those, those maximums have been adjusted for inflation over the years. Uh, so they're now about double what they were, but they're still relatively modest. Sure. Um, you know, too too modest for the SEC's liking, apparently. <laughs> yes. So, yes. They, they could go back to Congress and say, Congress, these penalties are too low. Give us bigger penalties. But that's not what they've what they've they uh, could and they done. sometimes do. OK. Um, in fact, one of the things they've been trying to do for years is allow the SEC as an alternative to use the amount of harm inflicted upon investors by a violation. Congress just hasn't gone there yet. Um but you may have seen um, a few weeks ago, the SEC announced its enforcement results for the fiscal year ended September 30th. Yeah. Um, 
4. And they boasted billion. Yeah, yeah, $4.2 billion in penalties, even though they file only about 450 cases a year. It's a big um, number. And so you kind of scratch your head and you say, with penalty limits at right now, they're about $200,000 for an individual, even if they commit fraud. Right. So, well, and, and why does the total keep going up every year when the pen? I mean, either is fraud getting worse every year or is there something else going on here? Um, no, it's basically every year the SEC wants to outdo itself. They get a lot of pressure from members of Congress. Um, and they fund some of their own budget with, the, with these penalties, too, don't they? Or is that not right? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little more complicated than that. I think what they can do is if they impose penalties or disgorgement that they don't distribute to investors, it goes into a separate pot of money that they can use then to pay out eye-popping whistleblower awards, which ah, okay. keep getting higher and higher and higher. But the real thing that has happened over the years is the SEC just wants to outdo itself pretty much every year. And so that's the way they justify their existence, their ever-increasing budget requests. Um, that's what vocal members of Congress want. That's what the financial media want. And so they just, they always want to get tougher and tougher and tougher. And so, so tell us about these tricks that SEC uses to artificially inflate penalties yeah. and evade statutory penalty caps. So the one that we're focused on in this case is they take a violation. For example, two of the defendants in this case were charged with not registering with the SEC as a broker dealer. Um, that in ordinary sense is one violation, you know, it's, it's, that's the violation. Yeah. Right. Um, and even at the maximum, that's a, and that's uh, not a fraud a, necessarily. No, if, it's not a fraud. You, they were not, yeah. weren't even charged with fraud. Okay. Um, so even under the statute now adjusted for 20, 30 years of inflation, uh, the maximum penalty is only about $10,000 per violation. So what the SEC does and what it's convinced courts to allow it to do is to split that violation up into many sub pieces. Um, sometimes, for example, they'll count it as a separate violation every time for every investor that you sold to. Um, so Which I failed course, to register once as a broker dealer, but I've sold to 100 people. So then that right. becomes 100 violations. Right. So now you've got 100 times the statutory maximum if you can get if the SEC can get away with it. Here, they did something even more sort of arbitrary and and bizarre, which was they convinced the court that the violation should be counted. A new violation should be counted every month that these people were not registered and they were still selling securities. Um, in one case, that was something like 50 or 60 months. In the other, it was 30-something yep. months. I think in our press release, we said 46 months for one and 65 months for the other. Yeah, that sounds that about sounds right. right. Um, so as you can see, I mean, you, you're now multiplying the possible maximum by 50-some or 46. or and, and not registering as a broker-dealer, I mean, when I'm not, if I haven't done something, I haven't done something I, until I do something else, right? Right. right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But the, the, just think about, it. I mean, how arbitrary it is to pick the number of months. Why not the the num? You know, why not the number of days or weeks? 
Well, um, what's and how do you pick the starting point? I mean, I'm also not registered as a broker dealer, but probably. <laughs> well, I mean, you know. that's not as arbitrary. I mean, <laughs> you can do it the first time you sold securities. Okay. Right? So I think that's and in fairness, that's probably exactly what they did. Okay. Um, there's a even another layer of arbitrariness because the district judge just sort of pulled out of thin air. Uh, I'm going to take the maximum and then reduce it by 20%, like with no real rhyme or reason to it. Just a discount. Good, good <laughs> right. for today only. So the, the, the resulting penalties against these two individuals who didn't even commit fraud were um, something like 360,000 for one of them. Yeah. And, and 523,000 yeah. for the other one. Um, so you kind of look at that, you compare it to what Congress actually authorized and it's twenty times. What you said was was five thousand dollars for. Well, it's with inflation. With inflation, maybe ten thousand. Okay, but still, this is yeah. There's a big difference between ten thousand and five hundred twenty-three thousand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know the SEC's kind of gotten away with this type of thing for years. Um, there was a third defendant who defended herself, uh, the Jocelyn Murphy. Um, they took a different approach with her. Um, must not they, have been another enough months at issue. So slightly less arbitrary, but but no less mani manipulative. I would say. I think at trial they proved that on three uh, on three occasions she had submitted uh, false zip codes in her order tickets. Um, and I probably should go back and just say generally what the case was about. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, it's about uh, something the SEC derisively calls municipal bond flipping. So just like with hot IPOs, uh, many times when a municipality issues a new bond series, um, the demand for the bonds outstrips supply. And many, Either because they're locally popular or the interest rate is particularly yeah, good or something. For, for various reasons, they tend to be very popular. Um, and many municipalities therefore insist that priority be given to mom and pop retail investors over the big players, and particularly mom and pops who live in that area. So um, the SEC basically said that these three defendants and about 10, I don't know, eight or 10 others were part of a ring that was trying to jump the line <laughs> and, and get get priority. Okay. Um, and some of them, including Jocelyn Murphy, were accused of submitting, of putting fake zip codes. So they'd be in the municipality. Right. Okay. And they and they look like just mom and pop retail investors to the people selling, doing the actual selling of the bonds. Um, so they the SEC proved that she used a false zip code on three separate occasions. But then when it came to the penalty phase, they said, well, really she she did that 21 times <laughs> and convinced the court that every one of those order tickets with a false zip code was a separate violation. Um, a little more, a little less arbitrary, I think, than a unit of time. Right. Because um, the unit of time I and mean, why months? It could have been weeks. It could have been hours. Right. Days. Yeah. days right. yeah, and the, like uh, the D.C. Circuit in a case called uh, Rappaport, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but pretty much rejected that and said that that doesn't make any sense at all. But here, the Ninth Circuit panel uh, 
affirmed it. Well, hopefully uh, the Ninth Circuit will, will listen to you. It's Congress's job to set the, the penalties here. And if, if the SBC gets away with something like this, then essentially you have the executive branch setting the penalties instead of Congress. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni. We are delighted to have uh, one of our favorite guests uh, with us today. Uh, and I say that because uh, her office is between John's and mine. So <laughs> we, we see her every day and uh, love to have you back on the program. Uh, Senior Litigation Counsel, Peggy Little. Thank you. Uh, and the reason we've invited uh, Peggy on is that she has been, uh, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, uh, kind of a, a bloodhound uh, here tracking uh, the SEC's uh, uh, wrongdoing and, and what looks like could be some pretty severe wrongdoing with what the SEC has the uh, temerity to call a, a control deficiency, uh, Peggy. Can you tell us what the SEC, uh, well, first of all, maybe what they've said that they did and then maybe what it looks like, uh, what, what else might be implicated here? Well, George Orwell always warned us to be attentive to political language and control deficiency here means that agency uh, enforcement staff accessed administrative law judge files, downloaded information, emailed it to enforcement staff, forwarded it to others. I mean, this is a plain breach of any protocol uh, that would try to keep those functions separate within the agency. So the prosecutors were looking at the judge's homework, essentially. <laughs> Indeed. And we have uh, long been concerned with uh, the due process problems presented by agency adjudication, where the prosecutor is also employs the judge who reaches the decision in your case. And worse, the commission itself is the first uh, uh, line of appeal for you. Right. So this couldn't happen in a real court because the prosecutors at the Department of Justice and the judges in Article three courts around the countries, they're on completely different computer systems. I mean, they don't they're not housed in the same locations. I mean, maybe there might be a U.S. attorney's office in a federal courthouse somewhere, but these are separate functions in separate branches of government. But here you have the folks operating as ALJs and the folks operating as prosecutors, apparently co-housed and sharing the same computer systems. And so folks were able to access files that they weren't supposed to, but they could and they did. Absolutely. And, and the disclosure was made in two of the most prominent cases that the SEC had, uh, the first being uh, a case NCLA is handling, and that is uh, Michelle Cochran versus the SEC, in which she was trying to vindicate her right to have a lawful adjudicator in-house uh, adjudicators' uh, qualifications to sit decided in a federal court. And uh, a second case, Jarkasi versus SEC, where similar claims were made. Um, Michelle Cochran's uh, 
case went all the way to the Supreme Court and is awaiting decision there. And Jarkissi seems pretty likely to end up uh, there as well. And, and so how many other cases uh, did this control deficiency extend to? And, I, and I, maybe I'll stop calling it a control deficiency. When did this egregious breach, <laughs> what, how, how wide did it, did it spread? We don't know other than it did happen in other cases. The SEC admits as much. And, but why haven't they disclosed what other cases yet? It's a mystery. There's so many ironies here. It d- makes this disclosure, which really isn't a disclosure. It uh, fights um, our FOIA requests to find out what their internal uh, investigation turned up. It also flouts uh, the law. Let, let, me, let me take a step back there. Mm-hmm. So... A FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, NCLA submitted a FOIA request to the SEC back on July 12th of this year, seeking records uh, about the control deficiencies to figure out what SEC had learned uh, in the internal investigation that that they did uh, and yet have not publicly uh, disclosed yet. Is that that right? That's right. And in fact, their first response was, well, tell us in which office you think this happened <laughs> and where we might have to go to get such files. Even though they've already done an internal investigation. There's a file. Yeah, they know. <laughs> they know. They're just not saying. Yes. Uh, so under FOIA, they should have to disclose this. Clearly. And worse yet, uh, there, the statute requires that when there is a problem of this nature, they need to turn this over to the inspector general for a proper investigation. That was not done. Instead, they conducted their own investigation with the general counsel and then employed an outside uh, research group called Berkeley Research Group, which is a business that does millions of dollars of business with the SEC every year, providing it with um, expert testimony and other support services. Sure, they're not suggesting that creates reason to doubt their objectivity when it comes to whether whether their employer has uh, done anything wrong. Well, let me just say, if a regulated party had a control (laughs) breach of this nature and hired one of its vendors to look into it, and they decided that everything was copacetic and then there was no problem here, the SEC would be all over that company for a breach of uh, a conflict of interest, for a breach of the law, if there was a law that required an inspector general. So this is deeply disturbing. The SEC is acting as if it's a disclosure means there's no problem here and we, we need to go away. Well, because they're above <laughs> reproach, don't you know? So how could you possibly think anything happened here? After all, their their vendor has cleared them of any... Actually, we don't know that the vendors cleared them of wrongdoing because they haven't disclosed the audit report they, that was they done. They haven't even released the report? No. No. And, and <laughs> they ask us where, where it might be found. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that bad. And indeed... Uh, and this is why you've sued. Yes. And we also observed uh, Congress uh, convened hearings on this. And uh, SEC uh, Chairman uh, Grewal would not attend, even though he had been summoned before comments in uh, Congress. Instead, he sent a deputy, deputy uh, director who immediately told the congressman questioning him that they had looked into it. Uh, immediately notified all parties of the breach immediately, and it turned out there was no problem. (laughs) All of those statements are untrue. In fact, we know the breach goes back at least to 2017. It could easily involve hundreds of cases, 
including Ray Lucia, sort of the first case you ever worked on and, here at NCLA. Exactly. And, Which was pending at that time. And I think just for our listeners, the reason this is so important is that they they say that the ALJ is doing the case and the prosecutors, there's a wall. We usually call it a Chinese wall that they never, ever talk to each other. And so there can be no undue influence. That's why this is so important in that the ALJs are, are mixing with the prosecutors directly. And this well, has... Although the ALJs didn't know this was happening right. from what we... So it, it seems like it was more of a situation of, and it's not necessarily the prosecutors. We don't know because again, the report hasn't been made public, but what they've what they've admitted is there were documents taken off of the ALJ side of the computer pro, uh, computer files uh, or, you know, off of the uh, system and moved over to the prosecutor side of the system where they could be read by any prosecutor. Now, we can't prove who all read them, et cetera, but someone moved them from one side of the computer system to the other side of the computer system. That should never have happened. And the breach goes back to 2017. Uh, and is de you know deeply disturbing. There was an earlier complaint about the SEC as well that um, one of the ALJs had felt pressured to rule in favor of the commission, and they did another one of these in-house uh, examinations and concluded that there was no such pressure. Nothing so, to see here. Yes, exactly. So there is a, a deeply disturbing uh, pattern of denial of what are serious breaches and serious problems. Uh, one comment uh, I read that sounded pretty descriptive of the situation, it's like a cop pulling you over and you say, thank you, officer. I will look into my own <laughs> uh, conduct and con conduct a, an investigation and let you know what I find. Let me get back to you. If <laughs> or I, or if, maybe if not. I I, if I was thinking <laughs> yes. I was speeding, that's right. Well, and here, the maybe not is is so. They have let every deadline pass that they are required by law to comply with the under freedom, FOIA, yeah. yeah, under the Freedom of Information Act, and the and as you mentioned, the Inspector General Act. I mean, they're they're long past having to turn this over to the IG for investigation. Yes, and and IG, there are mandatory uh, criminal referrals sometimes in that process, as well as public uh, hearings that can take place um, on that, and they are avoiding that process altogether. So this, uh, you know, as we say, this egregious breach demonstrates that in-house agency adjudications deprive defendants of due process and other constitutional guarantees because there isn't the independence here that they uh, purport to, to have. You, you, even if the adjudicator is, is disinterested, if the prosecutor is able to read the essentially the bench memos that the ALJs uh, are using, then that's not, a, that's not an independent process any longer. Uh, the Supreme Court has, has recognized that even the appearance of bias uh, toward a litigant violates the due process clause. So what is all of this? I mean, the fact that this has was going on, what does it mean for all of these cases that were pending when these control deficiencies happen? Are they all going to have to be thrown out? I think uh, very likely because these um, are serious breaches. They violate the assurances that uh, the agencies have been giving people for years who have been complaining about the inherent biases of having a, this in-house adjudication. And the only people who know whether they were affected are the very people who would be in serious legal trouble if they admitted to it. Right, the people who were caught with their hand in the cookie jar, yeah. I mean, so to speak. And uh, so far the pattern is to simply suppress information, all information. The thing I don't understand, I mean, the SEC, as you say, they appear to be defying the law, requiring <laughs> the, the IG investigation. They're slow walking any disclosure here. I mean. 
these self-serving tactics to me, I said, they bespeak an independent agency that thinks it's above the, the law and beyond disciplining. But why are the people who didn't have their hand in the cookie jar slow walking the disclosure? Like if I were the chairman of the SEC, I would say, let's figure out who did this. Let's get it all out there and let's hang these people out to dry because this isn't happening at my agency. But that's not what the response has been from the top brass. No, it isn't. And so there has to be a reason for that. We, we want to know how this even came to their attention. Uh, what Was there a whistleblower? Uh, we don't know how this came um, to light. And we are totally in the dark about the investigation. Well, thank you for, for telling our listeners about it, Peggy. This uh, lawsuit was filed uh, in the District of Columbia uh, Federal District Court, and we will keep you apprised of uh, what happened. Hopefully the SBC will come around and uh, comply with its FOIA obligations. We'll be able to tell you how to do the problem.